Father, I thank you that your word is very clear. It speaks of just one gospel. Lord, your word doesn't speak in confused language or strange tones. Lord, your word is very straightforward to us about the good news, our, our only hope. We as sinners have earned the wrath of God, and there's no way for us in our own strength and effort to climb our way up into your good graces. So you yourself came down in the person of your son. You sent your son, God the Son himself, who took on flesh and became a man, and he lived a righteous life in our place so that he could clothe us in his own righteousness. And then he went to the cross where he died bearing our sins, paying the penalty for our sins so that your wrath, instead of terminating on us, would instead terminate upon him and be exhausted upon him. And then he rose from the dead showing that the penalty uh, was paid in full, that there is nothing more uh, to be paid for. He is our redeemer. He is the one who has paid the ransom for us to be purchased off of the slave market of sin, to be brought out from underneath your wrath. And it is a free gift that he extends to every one of us, that if we would simply let go of ourselves and our sin and cling to him in faith, uh, he would forgive us and give us life everlasting. And Lord, as we come to the book of Ruth, which is something of an origin story, a true story of our Savior, Lord, I pray that you would give us insight into what we read, um, that we might delight even more in our Savior and, and trust even more in you uh, who has orchestrated the coming of our Savior to redeem us. Lord, bless our time in your word as we study it together. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, we're in the book of Ruth. We're starting chapter 2 today. So you can turn to Ruth chapter 2. And we're just looking at the first three verses. And we're kind of traversing through these chapters almost like it's a play and there's scenes. And the first scene of this second act is verses 1 through 3. So that's what we're looking at today. And again, this is not a fable. This is a story, but it is a true story without embellishment. It says, Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain, after one in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. You may think, how can you make a sermon out of that? Well, Lord willing, we'll find out. There's no such thing as chance. Proverbs chapter 16, verses 33, says that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. A roll of the dice is never just a roll of the dice. 
not when there is a personal, sovereign, and almighty God who overrules literally everything in all the universe. According to Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 to 30, there is not one bird that drops out of the sky or one hair on your head that falls without God being aware of it or determining that that should be so. In chapter 1 of this book that we're going through, we saw that Naomi understood this. She understood that her God was in control of everything. Yet rather than bring her joy, this truth seemed to drive her to hopelessness. Famine in the land of Judah, we saw in chapter 1, had prompted her husband Elimelech to move his family all the way to the country of Moab. And while in Moab, Naomi's husband and her two sons died, leaving her and her two daughters-in-law destitute and hopeless and without a future. And Naomi interpreted that as God being against her. And she seemed to not understand, or at least she seemed to forget that for God's people, that is, for those who trust in him, God's providence, whether that providence is bitter or sweet, it is always working together for their ultimate good, even if that good is hard to see in the moment. As we read in our call to worship, Jeremiah 29, verse 11, God says this to his people. He says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. And God says that in the context of sending his people into exile. Good would ultimately come out of that calamity. All that Naomi can see right now, as we've seen the events of chapter 1, all she can see right now is the calamity and the absolute destruction of the future that she had planned on with her husband and her two sons. She cannot yet see the greater future and the greater hope that God has set in store for her. But as we come to chapter 2, Naomi's perspective is about to change, and it starts right here in chapter 2. Uh, just backing up a little bit to the end of chapter 1, we saw, if you remember, Naomi and her daughter-in-law Ruth return from Moab to Bethlehem just in time for the start of the barley harvest. And now there's going to be a corner taken uh, as God works good in Naomi's life. And as a result of us looking at the first three verses of this chapter, I hope that your perspective will start to change as well as you apply the lessons learned here to your own life. So let's start with verse 1 of chapter 2. It's in this verse that we're going to see a heightened prospect. You know, Naomi in chapter 1 thought she had no prospects for the future. There was nothing for her, nothing left. There was no hope. But what we read in verse 1 is going to cause us to question that. It's going to heighten our expectations. It's going to heighten in our understanding the prospects that may be coming in Na into Naomi's life. So let's look at verse 1. It says this, Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now this, going through this verse, it's going to be a little like a Bible study 
because I want you to get the significance of what the narrator is telling us here. The narrator here in verse 1 is giving us some inside information that here at this point in the story, not even Naomi and Ruth are taking into account. And by giving us this information, the narrator is leaving us with a sense of expectation as we watch what Naomi and Ruth do next. We have more knowledge than Naomi and Ruth do at this point in this story. We are told here in this verse that Naomi has a kinsman, that is, a man who is a relative of hers. And we are told four things about this man. And each one of those four things is very important. First of all, we're told that he is a kinsman of her husband. He is a relative on her husband's side. He is related to Elimelech. Now, to the Jewish readers who first read this account and who were familiar with the law of God, this detail that may mean nothing to you, to them it would have been very significant, especially when they understand the vulnerable position that Naomi and Ruth were in after chapter 1. Just to help you understand the significance of this, there's an important word that we're going to encounter later on in this chapter. And it is the Hebrew word goel, which is often translated as kinsman redeemer. We're going to see that at the end of the chapter. A kinsman redeemer was a man who was responsible for redeeming his relatives from difficult situations. It was the responsibility of the man in nearest relation to the one in need to act on his or her behalf. If that closest relative was unable or unwilling to act, the responsibility to redeem fell to the next closest relative, and so on down the line until someone was able and willing to redeem the one in need. There were a couple of ways in which someone could act as a redeemer on behalf of his relative. First, if someone fell into poverty and was forced to sell his property, or was forced to sell himself into slavery in order to try to carve out a living for himself, the kinsman redeemer could buy back his relative's property or his relative's freedom for him. Now, let's go back to Leviticus. I want you to see this in the scriptures. Leviticus chapter 25 Leviticus 25 and verse 25. It says, If a fellow countryman or if a brother of yours becomes so poor he has to sell part of his property, then his nearest kinsman, that's Goel, his nearest kinsman is to come and buy back what his relative has sold. Now drop down to verse 47. Now if the means of a stranger or of a sojourner with you become sufficient, and a countryman or a brother of yours becomes so poor with regard to him as to sell himself to a stranger who is sojourning with you, or to the descendants of a stranger's family, then he shall have redemption right after he has been sold. That means 
He's not stuck in that position. Someone can buy him back if they want to. It says, one of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle, or his uncle's son may redeem him, or one of his blood relatives from his family may redeem him. So you see, if one, if one relation is not able to, you go to the next one out, maybe he will. If he can't, the next one out, maybe he can buy his relative back from that enslaved position. So that was one way that you could act as a goel, as a kinsman redeemer on behalf of a needy relative. Second, if someone was murdered, one of the relatives had the responsibility under the law to carry out justice upon the murderer by executing that murderer. This relative who served as an executioner was called a goel, same word which in those contexts in your Bible is usually translated as avenger, but it's the same word. Turn with me to Numbers 35 to see this. Numbers 35, verse 16. Here we have the law about this matter. But if he, an Israelite, struck a fellow Israelite down with an iron object so that he died, he's a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. If he struck him down with a stone in the hand by which he will die, and as a result he died, he's a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. Or if he struck him with a wooden object in the hand by which he might die, and as a result he died, he's a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. Verse 19, the blood goel, the blood avenger himself shall put the murderer to death. He shall put him to death when he meets him. If he pushed him out of hatred or threw something at him, lying in wait, and as a result he died, or if he struck him down with his hand in enmity, and as a result he died, the one who struck him shall surely be put to death. He is a murderer the blood goel, avenger, shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. The theological word book of the Old Testament explains it this way, explains goel in this connection. It says, quote, apparently the idea is that the next of kin must effect the payment of life for life. As a house is repurchased or a slave redeemed by payment, so the lost life of the relative must be paid for by the equivalent life of the murderer. And the kinsman would make that payment by executing that murderer. Now, one thing to take into account is that Israelite society was a patriarchal society. That is, it was a society that was oriented to a family's father rather than the family's mother. You see this in how genealogies are traced through the father, and property was passed down from father to son. Now, what does that mean for the kinsman redeemer? Well, in those few texts that we looked at, implied there is that the kinsman redeemer was a relative on the husband's or father's side of the family. And we're going to see that implication come to the surface at the end of the book of Ruth when we get to chapter 4. 
When you come to chapter 4 and verse 3, what do we find Boaz saying that Naomi is trying to do? She's trying to sell her property. Why? Because she's dirt poor. She needs something to live on. She is going to try to sell her husband's land. And though Naomi is in possession of her husband's land, it is still in her husband's name. Because property is oriented, the, the, the passing down of property from one to another, it, that happens through the line of the father or the husband. So to ensure that Elimelech's name is not wiped out from Israel, because your name was attached to the property that you owned in Israel. So to ensure that Elimelech's name was not going to be wiped out from Israel, the land to which his name is attached needs to be redeemed by one of his relatives. It has to be one of Elimelech's relatives who is the Goel, redeeming that property. So the fact that Naomi's kinsman here in Ruth 2 verse 1 was a kinsman of her husband, affirms for us that this man is possibly what? He is a possible goel or redeemer for this impoverished family. Not only that, but the fact that this kinsman is related to Naomi through her husband would also, in addition to him being a possible redeemer, he could also possibly enter into a leveret marriage with Ruth. What does leveret marriage mean? Well, leveret comes from the Latin lever. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. The Latin lever, which means brother-in-law. Leveret marriage is marriage to a brother-in-law. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 25, where the law regarding leveret marriage is outlined. This was God's provision for a man's name to continue in Israel if he died without having sons. If he died without having sons and um, nobody married his widow and raised up a son in his name, his name would just be wiped out as if he never existed. So God, in order to perpetuate the name of the deceased, provided uh, this means of perpetuating his name in Israel. Deuteronomy 25, starting in verse 5, says, When brothers live together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. With what result? Verse 6, it shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. But if the man does not desire to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He's not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall summon him and speak to him. And if he persists and says, I do not desire to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. In other words, if this man didn't love his brother enough to, to do this, uh, he was publicly shamed. 
And she shall declare, Thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. In Israel his name shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed. Now it's not stated in this passage, but we learn from from other scriptures, and let me give those to you if you want to look at them later. Uh, Genesis 38, we find Judah, one of Jacob's sons, and his daughter-in-law Tamar. Remember, she is married to one of Judah's sons, and that son dies. And so Judah gives Tamar to the next oldest son, and he fails to do what he's required to do. He, he decides, I don't want to raise up a child in my brother's name. And the Lord kills him, executes him for his disobedience. And Judah says, well, just hang around, wait till my third oldest son grows up and you'll marry him. We see the same thing in Matthew chapter 22, verses 23 to 30, where the Sadducees come up with this hypothetical situation to try to trap Jesus And they tell him this story of uh, a man who had a wife. That man had six or seven brothers. And that man died. And that wife got handed down successively to each brother until there were no brothers left because none of them bore, or she didn't bear sons to any one of them. And later on in Ruth, we find that that succession of one brother to the next would go beyond simply the sibling relationship and extend to even extended family, that an extended family could enter into a leveret relationship uh, with the widow. Where am I here? Let me see. So, all of that to say, it is very important that this man being spoken of in Ruth 2 was a kinsman of Naomi's husband. It's because he, because of that, he can potentially be a redeemer of Naomi and Ruth, and he can potentially be a husband to Ruth by entering into leveret marriage with her. Now, if you were the Jewish reader first reading this story, if you felt Naomi and Ruth's pain in chapter 1, and you saw how she said, I have no hope, when you come to chapter 2 and you read that first description of this man, you should start getting excited and hopeful for what may be coming in the story, that maybe there is hope after all. There is a redeemer out there. There is someone who is a potential husband to Ruth out there. Ruth felt herself to be beyond hope, but here in Ruth 2 verse 1, we are beginning to see that maybe things are not as hopeless as they seemed. Now, look at the second description of this man in verse 1. This man is described as a man of great wealth. That phrase, man of great wealth, it's often translated as mighty man of valor when referring to warriors. Think of Gideon in Judges 6, verse 12. Think of David in 1 Samuel 16, 18. They were mighty men of valor. That same phrase is applied to Boaz. Now, there's no mention in this book of Boaz being a warrior, so that word translated valor, when speaking of Gideon and David, probably means more something like wealth or honor in this context. He is a man of great wealth or a man of great honor. And indeed, later on, we're going to see that this man is both wealthy and honorable. Now, why does the narrator bring this up here before we even meet this man? 
Well, it's important that the narrator gives us this information because in so doing, he is giving us a hint that this man who could possibly be a redeemer, could possibly be a potential husband, this man has the financial resources and he has the character that would make him willing to be that redeemer and to be that husband to these, these women here. That's very important. So the narrator, he raised our hopes with the first description, and he's raised our hopes even higher with the second description because we discovered that this man has, has it within him to be that redeemer to Naomi and Ruth. He has it within him to be that, that husband to Ruth. Thirdly, this man is described as being of the family of Elimelech. Now that word for family here in verse 1 is mishpacha, and that word for family, it doesn't mean family in the way you and I normally use the word family. When you and I speak of family, we usually have in mind our more immediate family, our parents, our siblings, our children, our aunts and uncles, maybe our first cousins. But this word for family here in verse 1 is broader than that. It means something more like clan. This word for family is, is in between the specific level of immediate family and the very broad level of tribe. Think the 12 tribes of Israel. It's somewhere in between those two. To illustrate that, let's go to Joshua chapter 7 where we see this word mishpacha for family used. This is the account of Achan. Remember, uh, Israel was commanded to totally destroy Jericho. They were not to take any plunder, but this one man, Achan, decides to disobey, and he, he steals something from Jericho, and he brings guilt upon the whole nation. And so God has Joshua find out who this man is, and they progressively work through the whole nation and whittle it down to this one man. But look at Joshua 7, verse 16. So Joshua arose early in the morning and brought Israel near by tribes. So that's the very broad um, category, tribe. And the tribe of Judah was taken. So we whittled it down to Judah, the tribe of Judah. He brought the family of Judah near and he took the family of the Zerahites. So you have a, a more specific category of family, the family of the Zerahites, the Mishpacha of the Zerahites. And he brought the family of the Zerahites near man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought his household near. Household is an even more definite category. <clears throat> and near man by man, and Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, was taken. So all the descendants of Judah would be the tribe of Judah. Zerah was one of Judah's sons. So all the descendants of Judah's son, Zerah, made up the family, or the mishpacha of Zerah, or the Zerahites. So it's not as broad as tribe, it's a little, little more defined. And that larger group gets whittled down eventually to the household of, of Achan. Achan is the great-grandson of Zerah. So you see, family 
Mishpacha is a pretty broad category in between tribe and household. Now back in Ruth 2, this man that we're learning about, it is said of him that he belongs to the same Mishpacha family or clan as Elimelech. Now because family is a broad category, we don't really know how closely related he is to Naomi's husband. But we do know that because he belongs to the same clan, he is a blood relative. And so he qualifies to be a redeemer. And again, this will become very important later when we see Naomi trying to sell her husband's land. Why will, why will that be important? Well, it's because there was a great concern that a man's land stay within his family, his mishpacha, or clan, if he died without sons. We see this in the case of the daughters of, get ready for it, Zalafadad. Turn over to Numbers 27. This was a family, or these daughters belonged to that second generation of Israelites as they were getting ready to enter the promised land. These daughters' father, Zalafadad, he died in the wilderness with that first generation. And they're getting ready to allot the promised land, to divvy up the land among all the families. But these daughters, their dad is dead, and he had no son. So they're in the unfortunate position that there's not going to be any land allotted to this family because there's no man of the house. There's no one to bestow that property upon, and there's no mechanism for that property to be handed down because there's no son that Zalafadad had. So it's a conundrum. And these daughters, they come to bring that to, to Moses' attention. Numbers 27, verse 1, Then the daughters of Zalafadad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, of the families, there's that word again, families, of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. They came near, and these are the names of his daughters, Mala, Noah, and Hagla, and Milcah, and Tirzah. They stood before Moses and before Eleazar the priest, and before the leaders in all the congregation at the doorway of the tent of meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness, yet he was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah. Remember that big rebellion that happened? He wasn't part of that, but he died in his own sin, and he had no sons. That's the problem. He had no sons. Now listen to their concern in verse 4. Why should the name of our father be withdrawn from among his mishpacha, his family, because he had no son? What's their plea? Give us a possession among our father's brothers, so that what? Their father's name can continue in the land of Israel. And if you want to read more about that, write down Numbers 36, because there's more complications that happen later with this family. So back to Ruth 2, verse 1, it is very significant that this kinsman of Naomi's is of the family or clan of her husband Elimelech, because he is someone that Elimelech's name can survive through if he decides to redeem the property and to redeem Naomi, and to marry Ruth. Now, the fourth description of chapter 2, verse 1, is the name of this man. His name was Boaz. 
So our height, our, our, our expectations have been raised to the nth degree. I see all of you on the edge of your seat. And now we have his name, so we know who to look for as the story unfolds. So that, you see what the narrator did? He's a very good storyteller as he's relating these events, these real events that happened. That brings us to verses 2 to 3, where we see providential happenstance. That's a contradiction, a chance, and God's providence, they don't really go together. But we see something like that being spoken of here. Look at verse 2. It says, And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain, after one in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. Here in verse 2, we see even further that Ruth meant what she said back in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Do you remember that beautiful profession of commitment that she made to this woman in chapter 1? Ruth said to Naomi, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. Here in chapter 2, we see Ruth taking initiative in order to provide, not only for herself, but for her mother-in-law, the woman that she has irreversibly bound herself to in loving kindness. She politely asks Naomi if she can go out and try to get some food for them. Now, I can't say this for sure, but the fact that Naomi does not go out with Ruth to help gather food may indicate that Naomi was unable to do so. So when Ruth committed herself to Naomi back in chapter 1, it may be, again, maybe that Ruth understood not only was she signing up to be a permanent companion to Naomi, but she was signing up to be a permanent caregiver as well. Now it could just be that Naomi was tuckered out from that long journey back from Moab, but in any case, in this at this point, Ruth is stepping up to provide. Because there's no man of the house to provide. Ruth is the only one who can do it, apparently, at this point in time. And what does this do for our what does this do for our estimation of Ruth? It only heightens our respect and admiration for this woman. Since the barley harvest had begun when they arrived, Ruth's plan was to go out into the fields of Bethlehem and glean in the fields. What does that mean, to glean? It's to pick up the leftovers. As the reapers are gathering the grain in their arms, inadvertently some would drop out, and gleaners would come behind and pick up what had fallen to the ground. And that was a right that God's law gave to the poor in the land. God's law permitted the poor, the foreigner, the orphan, and the widow to do that, to take advantage of that. And let's take a look at those laws. Leviticus 19. Again, I'm taking the time to walk you through these passages because it will help you better appreciate what comes later in this chapter. Leviticus 19. 
Leviticus 19, verse 9, the law of God says, Now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field. They were supposed to leave some left over. Nor shall you gather the gleanings, that is what kind of fell to the ground. Nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. Nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Then chapter 23 of Leviticus, verse 22. When you reap the harvest of your land, moreover, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor gather the gleaning of your harvest. You are to leave them for the needy and the alien. I am the Lord your God. And then Deuteronomy 24, verse 19. Deuteronomy 24, verse 19 through 22. When you reap your harvest in your field and have forgotten a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow, in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive tree, you shall not go over the bows again. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not go over it again. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow. Why should they do this? Verse 22, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I'm commanding you to do this thing. So this was something God provided for the poor, the foreigner, the orphan, and the widow to do. And Ruth qualified for this provision of the law on all four counts. She was poor. She was a foreigner. Notice the narrator in Ruth 2 reminds us that she's a foreigner. He says, Ruth the Moabitess. She was, in effect, an orphan because she left her parents to go with Ruth, or to go with Naomi. So she has no parents to fall back on in this situation. And she was, of course, a widow. Now, to glean, as I said, was to pick up the leftover grain that had been accidentally dropped. And if the reapers were careful, the pickings might be pretty slim for those who are coming behind them. So this was not a way to get rich, gleaning. Also, not every landowner would be equally mindful of what God's law required, especially at this time period, during the time of the judges. The commentator Frederick Bush points out that because the law of Moses had several laws that specifically provided for the protection of these vulnerable groups of people, and because the prophets would routinely denounce Israel for abusing these people, that indicates that the denial of this right to glean would have been common. And that's likely why Ruth says that she plans to glean after one in whose sight I may find what? Favor. She, she needs someone to let her do this. Now, Naomi, likely recognizing their precarious situation, grants Ruth permission to go. What other choice do they have? They need to eat. So she says, go, my daughter. 
So, verse 3, Ruth puts her plan into action. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. So Ruth departs and she goes and she gleans after the reapers. According to commentator Robert Hubbard, the reapers were not slaves, but they were free Israelites who hired themselves out for a certain time to work for agreed-upon wages. So Ruth is going along behind these workers, picking up whatever they happen to drop. And we are told at the end of verse 3 that she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz. Some of your translations may say she came by chance to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz. Now which Boaz is this? The Boaz who was of the family of Elimelech. So Ruth, unbeknownst to her, is gleaning in the field that is owned by the very man that the narrator told us about in verse 1. The man who is legally able, financially able, and characteristically able to pull Naomi and Ruth out of their hopeless situation. So when you read verse 3, you should have leaped out of your pews saying, this is incredible. How did she get into that portion of the field? The narrator tells us she happened to come. In other words, from Ruth's perspective, it was, it's by chance. It's not as though Ruth was planning this. She has no idea who Boaz is. She doesn't even know he exists. Her total ignorance of this man will become clear later on in this chapter. There was no human planner directing Ruth into that portion of the field, but there was a divine planner. The same one who had brought the famine to Judah, which led to Naomi ending up in Moab, the same one who, as Naomi put it in chapter 1, afflicted her and brought her back empty after she had gone out full, the same one who had dealt very bitterly with Naomi is the very one who imperceptibly guided Ruth to this particular field. Yahweh God, the Almighty, has placed Ruth in that field. And that conclusion is so obvious from how the story will unfold that the narrator feels no need to explain it to us. Like any good storyteller, he, he lets, lets the events speak for themselves. There are no coincidences. There is no such thing as a chance occurrence. Not when there is a sovereign, personal, and almighty God who rules over the universe. In chapter 1, Naomi rightly attributed the painful events in her life to this sovereign God. But by the end of the story, she will discover that those trials were simply the means that this sovereign God was using to accomplish a profound blessing that was beyond Naomi's wildest dreams. A blessing that God set in motion by directing Ruth's feet into the field that belonged to Boaz. And we know from the genealogy that ends this book, the genealogy that tells us that King David will come from the, un the unlikely union of Ruth and Boaz, the same David who is the ancestor of the Messiah, 
We know from that genealogy that the Messiah himself will arise out of Naomi's pain and loss. Out of her emptying will come one who is truly God and truly man. Someone who will go to a cross and sacrifice himself for the sins of his people as the spotless Lamb of God. Someone who will rise from the dead. Naomi had no idea what God was doing. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, I'm hoping that these three verses that you have looked at today will prompt you to look at your life in a new way. Keep it in mind as you go throughout this coming week. The trials that come this week, the people you meet, the places in which you find yourself, any blessings that you experience, none of that is by chance. The sovereign and almighty God is orchestrating and using every bit of that in your life to make you more like your Savior, Jesus Christ, so that he may be the firstborn of many brethren, like Paul says in Romans 8. Ruth had no idea what was happening when she just walked into that part of the field. There's nothing more exciting than living life with the awareness that God is causing all things in my life, things that I think are significant and things I think are insignificant, things I think are good and things I think are bad. God is using all of that to work together for my good and his glory. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, if you have not turned away from your sins and surrendered your life to Christ by faith, trusting in him alone to save you and rule you, consider this. It is not by chance that you happen to find yourself here today. It is not happenstance that today, of all days, you are hearing about Jesus Christ, who is your only hope for salvation, for forgiveness, for eternal life, and for purpose. This moment here and now, will result in one of two things for you. On one hand, if you ultimately reject Jesus Christ after hearing about him today, you will find yourself standing before God, having to explain why it is you heard about this Savior and you did not receive him by faith. And you will find that you have no excuse that God accepts and he will cast you into hell forever and ever. On the other hand, if you ultimately receive Jesus Christ by faith, when you die, you will go straight into the presence of Jesus Christ in heaven as one of his blood-bought children, forgiven and free and living in his joyous light forever and ever. And you will look back on this day and you will thank God that he directed you to come to this place at this hour to hear about this one who rescued your soul. And you will spend forever worshiping God for his mercy in directing your life to hear about Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us, for how you direct our feet in such a way that you would cause us to come here this morning to hear about your son who died to save us from our sins and who rose from the dead that you would tell us that this is not by chance that we are here. This is you out of your kindness and your grace that you would put us here at this moment to hear about Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, not to throw it away. Help us to respond to him, to your son, by faith, yielding our lives to him, trusting that 
Jesus alone can save us, and he alone is worthy to take control of our lives and lead us. Lord, give us that, that faith. Give us those eyes to see your, your working in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.